In one of his books, the author William Bryant Logan tells the story about visiting a monastery high in the mountains of New Mexico, um, Christ of the Desert Monastery. It was cold, it was February, and he was touring the grounds with a monk. And he noticed as they came around a corner, an open grave uh, just sitting there with a big pile of dirt sitting next to it. And so he said to the monk that was touring him, he said, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry, uh, has, has a brother died? And the monk replied, uh, no, but we can't dig in winter. The ground is too cold. So we opened up the grave ahead of time just in case. I, I found that story really eerie, uh, living in the presence of an open grave. Can you imagine living in the presence of the possibility of suffering and death all the time. And as I was thinking about that this week, I know it sounds a little morbid, but in some ways this is the the situation that we collectively find ourselves in right now. You might not be sick, and you might not be uh, struggling or infected, and you might not be dying, and yet all around us people are, and in many ways we are living in the presence of the possibility of suffering and the possibility of death all the time. We're living in the presence of an open grave. Uh, Daily, we hear death counts uh, in Richmond, uh, in Virginia, in the U.S., and the world. Just a few miles from where I'm standing right now, uh, 19 men and women were killed uh, by this virus in a rehabilitation center just not far from here. Uh, Many people are sick and dying. I talked to a friend yesterday at VCU that VCU is starting to be overwhelmed with the number of sick patients. And most terribly of all, many of these patients who are having to endure sickness and death are doing so completely alone, cut off from their families. We're hearing daily about the economic impact that this pandemic is having Uh, 10 million people unemployed uh, in the last two weeks. 7 million people applied for unemployment in the last two weeks. Um, So many people, countless people, losing their livelihoods, their jobs, their health insurance. We're hearing about the social impact, the social suffering of the impact of this pandemic. Uh, Kids who are languishing in the foster system. Um, Kids and families who already face great trials living in poverty. And those trials now being exacerbated. Uh, people who live in the fear of domestic abuse or conflict in the home, um, now greatly pressured under the psychological pain of being trapped in those environments. And that's just not even to mention sort of the general impact of anxiety, worry, isolation, and fear that all of us are living with. You know, most, most of the time in normal life, I think a lot of us live with the ignorance and the bliss Maybe the willful ignorance that suffering and pain and death is something that happens to other people. Um, Poor people, people who make mistakes, uh, people in other countries, uh, people who make risky decisions. But suddenly we're in a situation where virtually every person on the planet is affected in some way or another by this pandemic. Uh, This virus has no respect for power or money or wealth or status, Uh, no amount of planning can protect you from it. It's like we all feel, in the words of the author and philosopher Ernst Becker, 
the lived truth of the terror of creation, the rumble of panic underneath everything. We find ourselves living in the presence of an open grave. Now, am I being dramatic? Maybe a little. Um, That's what preachers do. Uh, Most of us aren't panicking. Most of you who are watching um, are not panicking. You're just bored Um, and maybe getting a little frustrated, maybe going a little crazy. But here's what I'm saying is that beneath the boredom and beneath the frustration and beneath the funny memes is this deep awareness that we are all collectively now caught up in the deep fragility and instability of the world. We feel that the world is groaning. And here's my question. Where is God? Why did God allow the coronavirus? Where is God in the midst of a world where millions of people are suffering? You know, that's a question that a lot of people are asking. I've heard a lot of people asking it. Frankly, it's not a new question. People have been asking that question throughout the history of time. Frankly, the problem of suffering is only a problem for believers. If you are an atheist or if you are a convinced secularist, uh, the problem of suffering is not a problem for you because there's nobody driving the steering wheel of the world. There's nobody in charge. There's nobody overseeing anything. Uh, We're just caught in the whims of biology. And there's no one to shake your fist at. So it's not really a problem for you unless you're a believer. But if you are a believer in the Father, Son, and Spirit, then this is a problem. It's a real problem of suffering because we believe that God is loving. We believe that God is powerful. So if God is loving and if God is powerful, then where is he? How could he be allowing such vast suffering on the planet? That's a really difficult question, and that's not a question that I can answer in a a short sermon. But here is what I want to say. The Bible, in the end, does not necessarily seek to answer our questions about the problem of suffering. Instead, what the Bible does is it tells a story. It tells a story that is centered in a single person, the person of Jesus. To to paraphrase uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't give us a watertight argument. It gives us a watertight person. It says, look at this person if you want to know what God does in the face of suffering. So today we're looking at this phrase. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. We're confessing with this phrase that God in the person of Jesus suffered. He didn't suffer in an abstract way. Uh, He suffered in time. His suffering can be dated. It's rooted in human history. It's not an idea. It's not mythology. It's a fact. And so here's my question. How does the suffering of a first century Jewish man affect our suffering today? That's the question that we want to look at together this morning. Okay, first of all, here's what I want to say. The first thing that we learn about Jesus' suffering and our suffering is that Jesus shares our suffering. Jesus shares our suffering. You might have noticed this before, and a lot of people have pointed this out in the creed, is that the creed does not say much about Jesus's life. Uh, It mentions his birth. You know, last week we looked at he was born of the Virgin Mary. But then the very next phrase seems to jump over 33 years and jump to the very end of his life. He suffered 
under Pontius Pilate. What about the rest of Jesus's life? I mean, if I don't know about you, but I don't want someone to describe my whole life by just the very beginning and the very end. You know, I'd like the, the, the stuff in the middle to be included as well. What about that? Well, friends, look, in some ways, that single word in the creed, suffered, does it have one R or two R? Just one R, right? So, <laughs> suffered. That one word describes not just the end of his life, but describes the entirety of Jesus' life. The creed does include every part of Jesus' life, but it includes it in an incredible concise way in this single word. Zacharias Ursinus, who was a 16th century Reformed theologian, named seven ways that Jesus suffered. Among them are he gave up the joys of heaven. He experienced the infirmities of our human nature like hunger, thirst, and grief. He knew deprivation and poverty. He endured insults, treachery, slander, rejection, betrayal, and contempt. He was tempted and harassed by the devil. He was the victim of injustice. He was beaten and died a shameful and painful, God-forsaken death alone. So you see, this word suffered, it doesn't just describe the end of Jesus' life. It describes the whole of his life. He was, as it says in Isaiah 53.3, a man familiar with suffering. Last week, we talked about the incarnation, this great truth that in the person of Jesus, God took on our skin, put on our shoes, entered into our time and space. And what's so amazing, friends, is that when God did that, God, of, of all places, God could have, he chose not to enter into a palace or to live in some country club of luxury and comfort. No, when God became man. He voluntarily inserted himself into some of the most painful and tragic of human experiences. He was born into a desperately poor family, into a time and place in the first century where daily life was filthy, unhealthy, dangerous, among a people who misunderstood, maligned, and ultimately betrayed him, and where he experienced the most horrific and painful of deaths. That's God with us. A God who shares our suffering and who, who, who is with us in our confusion, in our pain, in our sorrow. I love what uh, the author Francis Spufford says. He says, for a Christian, the most essential thing God does in time and all of human history is to join our common catastrophe. God with us. A friend of mine told me this story that her mother was dying and was in the hospital. And she was standing outside her, her mom's hospital room in the hallway, uh, and she was just crying. She was just overwhelmed with grief. And as she was standing there crying outside her mother's room, uh, a nurse or a nursing aide uh, was walking down the hall, a, a woman that she had never met. And this woman just stopped right in front of her, looked her in the eyes, and just said two words just said, Jesus wept. And then she just kept on walking. Jesus wept. It's actually a verse in the Bible, one of the shortest verses in the Bible from John 11 when Jesus stood outside the tomb of one of his best friends, Lazarus, standing next to an open grave with someone in it. And there Jesus just stood and he wept. 
And so when that woman said those two words to my friend, Jesus wept, suddenly my friend realized, he's here. Right here, he's with me. Weeping, grieving, carrying my, my sorrow. See, friends, that's the amazing truth of the incarnation, the truth of his suffering. God is not aloof. God is not some distant God. He is a God who is with us. I don't know about you, but I, would, I could not believe in God were it not for the suffering of Jesus. He is not immune from our pain. He weeps, he suffers, he shares our common catastrophe. He shares our suffering. That's the first thing we see. But we need to take it a step further because the creed does not just confess that Jesus suffered, but that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He doesn't just share our suffering. He, second, bears our suffering. He bears our suffering. Jesus did not just suffer in a general way. He also suffered in a very specific way by facing the condemnation of a human court and undergoing trial, torture, execution, and death. He bore judgment. You know, let's, we could put it another way like this, that in some ways, uh, Jesus's suffering was universal. He shared our suffering. Uh, the way that Jesus suffered, in some ways, he suffered in the way that every human has to suffer. He shared the universal, general experience of being a human being. He suffered in a universal way. But in, in another way, Jesus' suffers, suffering was entirely unique. There was a way that Jesus suffered that was only unique to him that no other human being has or ever will suffer in the unique particular way that Jesus had to suffer. What was that? Well, there's a hint of it in our text. If you have the text in front of you from Mark 15, you might look at it. You'll see in this story that, that Pilate, who was the Roman proconsul in this particular area, he is uncomfortable with this trial. The, the chief priests have brought Jesus to him, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. Um, he doesn't think that Jesus deserves execution. You can tell that in his gut, he knows that Jesus is innocent. And so he's looking for a way out. You can see in verse six, it says that it was the custom at the Passover to release a prisoner. So he says, aha, here's maybe a loophole. I can, maybe if I can't get Jesus off the hook of these, these accusations, I can get the crowd to release Jesus. So he's got two prisoners. All right. I'm going to draw this again for y'all. He's got two prisoners. He's got Jesus, just going to call him J, who is the innocent one, the one who has no real uh, reason for his judgment. And then on the other hand, you've got a second prisoner that he's dealing with right then, and his name is Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist who had murdered people and who was very clearly guilty of his crimes. And so Pilate goes to the people and he says to the crowd, what do I do with the king of the Jews? Can I release him? What should I do with this one that you call Jesus? And the crowd answers, crucify him. And Pilate says, why? What has he done? What crime has he committed? But did you notice the crowd doesn't even answer his question at this point. They just cry out all the louder, crucify him. 
It's almost like they know that he's innocent. They know there's no real substantial reason for his execution. They just want him dead. Crucify him, they say. And so what you see happens here is that Jesus takes the place of the guilty one while Barabbas takes the place of the innocent. What we see here is a very powerful event happening. It is the event of substitution in which the innocent takes the place of the guilty and the guilty takes the place of the innocent. The innocent is put in the place where the guilty one stands while the guilty one is put in the place of the innocent. The innocent one takes the punishment of the guilty while the guilty walks free. So, you know, Mark, the one who is writing this, could not make this any more clear, is that we are Barabbas, that we're the guilty, that Jesus is taking our guilt upon himself. He's taking our guilt. He's taking upon himself our shame. He's taking upon himself our sin. He's taking upon himself our judgment. He's taking upon himself our condemnation. He is being treated in the way we should be treated, and he's doing this. He's dying that we might live, that we might walk free as the innocent one. You know, there have been a lot of powerful stories that we've been hearing in the midst of this pandemic and people of just expressing profound acts of love and humanity with one another. And one of the ones that I heard this week that I was moved by was of a Pittsburgh woman who declined the use of a ventilator uh, because she wanted it given to someone who, in her words, still has a life to live. This is a direct quote. She said, I've lived my life. I've raised my family. I'm grateful for the days I've been given. Give the ventilator to someone else, a college student, the mother of four young children, the parent with a disabled child. I've lived my life. It's time for someone else to live. I mean, stories like that move us so deeply. Why? Because it's substitution. It's substitutionary love. Substitutionary love is, is at the heart of the, the universe. And this is what Jesus does, what God does at the cross for us through Jesus. He goes the way of substitutionary love for us. Jesus says, let me die that they would live. The one who created all things, the one who made all things, the one who holds all things in his hands says, I will bear the weight. I'll bear the weight of the full rebellion of humanity against God, and I will bear the weight of the full wrath of God against humanity. I will bear all of it upon myself in this single event of cross. Let me die that they might live. So you see, friends, Jesus' suffering is utterly unique, utterly distinct. He suffers in a way that none of us will ever have to suffer. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything that we who have done everything wrong would be condemned for nothing. He not just shares our suffering, he bears it fully for us that we might be free. So Jesus shares our suffering. In Holy Week, remember, he bears our suffering. And then finally, one last thing to say is that Jesus ultimately redeems our suffering. 
What does that mean? Well, you know, the creed tells a story, a story that leads through the last days of Jesus' life, his trial, his death, his burial. And this week, together, we're going to walk through that story. And I hope that we can do that together, even though we're geographically separated. We remember today that Jesus rode that donkey right down into Jerusalem, the place he knew he would be killed. On Thursday, we remember that Jesus gathered with his disciples for the last meal in the upper room. On Friday, we remember Jesus' trial and his torture and his execution. Uh, On Saturday, we remember that Jesus lied by himself, stone cold, dead in the grave. We're going to follow that story together this week. And then, of course, all of this leads to Sunday, a week from today, when we celebrate the most astounding and universe-altering event in history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And, of course, we're going to go into that in great length next week, next Sunday. But let me just give you a little appetizer and say this, that when Jesus rises from the dead, he defeats suffering and he defeats death, not just for himself, but for us and for all creation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And he says in Romans 8 that I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. The creation itself waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed so that it would be liberated from its bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, friends, through the resurrection, Jesus redeems every ounce of suffering in human history. In the cross and resurrection, God wins the battle against the forces of darkness, disease, and death that hold our world and our lives captive. God wins. And so we see that the promise of Christianity is not an afterlife. It's not some heavenly uh, uh, place in the clouds. It is a restored world, a restoration of shalom, a world where there is no death, no tears, no abuse, no virus, no injustice, where suffering and death and sighing flee away. God promises through Jesus the end of suffering. But here's a question that you might be asking. Well, what about now? Okay, preacher man. I know that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth where suffering and death will be gone forever. But what about today? What, what about the struggles of today? What about the anxiety and the fear I'm living with right now? What about the, the way I feel when I go to the grocery store and I start panicking and looking at all the people around me afraid right now and to see the empty shelves? What about the fact that this week, you know, some of you are going to have to furlough all of your employees and wonder about how you're going to make your business survive? What about right now? Well, let me just say this. We are certainly promised a day that is coming when we will be free of suffering and death, but we're not promised that freedom right now. If anything, we're promised the opposite. Jesus says in John 16, in this world, here's my promise. You will have trouble. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that being um, wealthy or being an American or being a Christian in any way preserves you or keeps you immune from the pain, the sorrow, the brokenness, and the death of our world. That's not a promise. And yet, because of Jesus' substitutionary love for us, because of his death and resurrection, if you know Jesus, you can have a tremendous resource of power, courage, hope, and resilience in the face of suffering like the ones that we're in right now. You know, you all know that um, if, you've, if you've been with us at Third for a while, you know I'm very fond of this illustration that I often cite 
when I talk about suffering, of the, of the carrot, uh, the, the egg, and the coffee bean. You can take a, a pot of boiling water and take a carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean and all drop it together into that pot of boiling water. And all three of those, each of them will have very different results. The, the, the carrot will become soft, the, the egg will become hard, and the coffee bean becomes fragrant. And this is an analogy for how different people respond when they get dropped into the boiling water of suffering. Some people become soft, so they can't really cope with and deal with the pain and the sorrow of the world. Some people become hard and embittered and angry towards God and others. And some people, some people, when they get dropped into the boiling water of suffering, they become fragrant. They become transfigured. They become more beautiful. Why is that? Suffering can break you or suffering can break you open. Suffering can make you a shell of the person that you were or suffering can plant you in the ground and grow you into the glorious version of yourself. As the philosopher Nick Walterstorff said, who lost his own son in a climbing accident, the valley of suffering is the veil of soul-making, often the tool that God uses to make us wholly wise and like himself. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. There is nothing um, sentimental. I, I don't want to sentimentalize suffering. There is certainly nothing romantic about the suffering that many people are enduring globally right now, and, and it is very unhelpful and very insensitive for you to suggest to someone who is suffering right now that their pain must be for some higher good, and they should be happy and just grin and bear it. Please don't do that. Please don't say that. Most of the time, suffering doesn't make any sense, and you just have to sit with it and put one foot in front of the other. And yet, for those who know the death and resurrection of Jesus, when your suffering is caught up into the greater story of Jesus and his J-curve, his death and resurrection, then your suffering, instead of breaking you, can break you open, uh, can, can lead to a, a greater life. Have you noticed that some of the wisest people that you've ever known are the people who have most suffered? And that when you ask them about their life and they reflect back on their life, they don't necessarily talk about the times they were really happy and really comfortable. When, when they talk about the most formative moments of their life, it was when they walked through the deepest valleys and knew the deepest pain. I could just tell you personally that though I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm not very old yet, yet and yet, uh, the times in my life when I know that I have come most in, I have been most confronted by my weakness and by my sin and by my fear and by my insecurity and by my neuroses are the moments of the greatest conflict, the greatest pain, and the greatest sorrow. It is in these moments that God, Jesus, through his spirit in his death and resurrection can meet us to help us, to be with us, to transfigure us. Jesus redeems our suffering in so many ways. It, his suffering teaches us gratitude, it helps us appreciate those things we often take for granted. Suffering shatters this illusion of self, self-sufficiency that so many of us Americans live with. It exposes the vanity of our ambitions, the foolishness of our ego-centered desires. Suffering helps clarify to us what actually matters most in life. Suffering helps us come to terms with our total dependence on God for absolutely everything. Suffering tenderizes the heart, generates compassion, 
catalyzes us to live in greater solidarity with all those on our planet who live in constant insecurity and pain. Because of Jesus, friends, our suffering doesn't have to be meaningless. As Jesus' own suffering bore immense meaning for the entire salvation of the world, so now your little suffering can bear great meaning for your life and for those around you. Friends, we know this to be true, even if we know nothing to be true, is that in the cross, in the events of Holy Week, God took the most horrific and inexplicable suffering and death, and he used that thing to bring about the greatest possible good. And I promise you, if you stay close to Jesus, live in union with him, he will do that in your life as well. So let's close. Uh, let's, just, let's just be real, okay? Uh, th- uh, uh, things might get worse. Especially in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear a lot about the death tolls. We're going to hear a lot about unemployment. Um, some of the realities of this will really begin, uh, the rubber will really begin hitting the road on a lot of these realities, these economic and social realities. So here's what I want to say to you, my dear family. Let's not waste this pain. Let's not waste this sorrow. Uh, let's use it to, to cling to our triune God of love. Let's use this to press into the Father's love for us. Let's use this to press into Jesus and his suffering with us. Let's use this to press into what it means to live daily with the Spirit and to see him generate in us the, his fruit that he wants to produce in us. Hold fast to Jesus. Stay close to him. Live in union with him. Hear him saying to you, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God promises that every crucifixion turns to resurrection with Jesus, our Lord. So let's come to the table now and let's encounter Jesus, the one who shares our suffering, the one who bears our suffering, and the one in the end redeems all suffering for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you that in this holy week we follow your journey to the cross We remember what you have accomplished for us. And we pray now as we come to this table that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, the one who loves us and who died for us. Amen.